How many of you have ever flown through Chicago's O'Hare International Airport? You ever been there? One of the busier ones in the world. That's one I had to late at night run from one end to, you know, just a long run to catch a flight. I have bad memories of that place. But uh, Chicago's airport was named after a hero from World War II. His name was uh, Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot stationed on an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific during that war. One day in 1942, his entire squadron were sent on a mission. And after they were airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized he didn't have enough fuel to complete the mission and get back safely to the ship. Apparently they had forgotten to top off his, his fuel tank before they took off. And so the flight commander ordered him to, to abort the mission and go back to the, to the ship. When he... Uh, was about halfway back to the aircraft carrier, he noticed a squadron of Japanese bombers heading for the American fleet. They didn't have time to get the other planes to bring them back, and the ships were unprotected because all the, all the fighter planes were on that mission. And he knew he had to do whatever he could to distract the Japanese bombers and, and maybe lead them away from the American ships. So by himself, with just as one plane, he attacked with the guns on both wings firing, and, and, and he attacked and attacked until he'd used all of his ammunition. And then he made the decision that he was going to continue attacking, hoping that maybe somehow he could damage some of those planes, maybe by knocking off a piece of the tail section or a wing or something. And, and so he started doing that. And after a while, in, in exasperation, the Japanese bombers turned and headed in a different direction. And Butch O'Hare limped his damaged fighter plane back to the carrier. After he, uh, he landed, they checked the film on the camera that had been on his plane and discovered that in his battle he had destroyed five of those Japanese bombers. He became a hero in his hometown of Chicago and other places. As a result of that battle... Butch O'Hare was the Navy's first ace in World War II and was the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. About a year later, when he was 29, he was killed in battle. And today, one of the busiest airports in the world is named in his honor, and I believe it's between Terminals 1 and 2. I'm not certain. I think that's where it's at. There's a, there's a statue to Butch O'Hare, a memorial. great sacrifice to protect fellow soldiers. But there's another story that's got a very different twist on it. It's about a, another man in Chicago named Easy Eddie who was a lawyer. In fact, he was Al Capone's lawyer. And Capone, for those of you who don't remember, was a gangster, a mobster in 1920 Chicago during the era of Prohibition. Made a fortune through bootleg booze, prostitution, violent and vile, murder, etc. And Eddie was his lawyer. And he was a skilled, talented lawyer who kept Capone out of jail for a decade. And in the process, Capone made Eddie very, very wealthy. In fact, Eddie lived in a large mansion surrounded by a gated fence that took up an entire city block with live-in help. 
He benefited from Capone's wealth and had all you could want materially in life. Living the good life. Knowing what Capone was doing and helping him figure out how to, how to skirt the law. How to, not, how to not get convicted. But he also had a boy. Eddie had a boy that he loved. And he, he gave him everything money could buy, good clothes, good cars, and as he got older, a good education. But deep inside, Eddie wanted his boy to have a better life than he had had, to be a better man than he had become. And over the years, tried to teach him, given, and this is really kind of funny to think about given his, his, his own circumstance, tried to teach him right from wrong. But despite everything Eddie bought his boy, there were two things he could not give him that he couldn't buy him. He, he couldn't give his son a good name. And he could not give his son a good example. So after struggling with that, he made a very tough decision. He went to the authorities and gave them all the evidence they needed on Al Capone. He knew it would be a risky thing to do, but he did it anyway. Trying to perhaps rehabilitate his name a little bit so that his son could have a better future. Trying to at least give his son some example of doing the right thing. He testified against Capone. And less than a year afterward, he died in a hell of bullets on a lonely Chicago street. But he'd done a little bit to give his boy a better name and to give his boy a better example. Eddie was Butch O'Hare's father. All of us know stories of people in life who are motivated by something, to do something significant. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's a dad whose life is a mess himself, but he loves that boy and he, and he wants to do something to make it better, and he'll sacrifice. I mean, he'll do what he can. Maybe it's a soldier out of a sense of honor and duty for his fellow soldiers that will sacrifice his own life. Human beings are capable of doing incredible things when we're motivated by something that means a lot to us. In this sermon series, Grace Changes Everything, we're looking at how God has a love for us that is so incredible that it changes things. So incredible that it motivates God to do things that on the human level really don't make sense. And so last Sunday we talked about how God's grace, God's love for us was so strong, so real, so significant that it motivated Him to send His Son Jesus Christ to die on a cross in our place. And that in Jesus dying, He was demonstrating, expressing Proving God's love. that we, we don't have to have any question about whether or not God loves us. That, that all you have to do is look at Christ and look at the cross and there's the evidence. And that He gave His Son as an expression of love. And what makes that love even more incredible is who He gave Jesus to die for. 
for me, for you, for us. Last week we looked in Romans chapter 5, and if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it there, at how that passage uses several words to describe us apart from God. That apart from a relationship with Christ, the very people that Jesus died for, that God loves, are described as sinners, as helpless, as weak, as ungodly, as enemies, enemies of God, hostile to the things of God. That that's who we are without Christ. That's our condition, situation. That's our life. That's me, that's you, that's us without Jesus. Sinners, helpless, ungodly enemies. And it's for those people, for me, for you, for us, for those people, that God had love. A love that motivated them to send Jesus to die on that cross. That's, that's, that's an incredible love. That's an incredible grace. Well, today, I want us to think a little bit about how who we are changes when we respond to that gift of love. When we respond to that grace of God through faith in Christ. That, that everything really does change. So let's read these verses together again. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. You got your Bible open? You got it on your pad? Your phone? Let's look at these verses. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What a beautiful expression. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God, or we rejoice in it, we glory in it. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Verse 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In verse 11. Not only this, but we also exult, rejoice, boast, glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I want us to think about how responding to the expression of God's love in Jesus at the cross, how responding to that changes us and how it changes the way we see ourselves and see our life. And he makes all of that very, very clear in these 11 verses. That, that God's grace, when we respond to it, changes us by changing our relationship with God. It changes who we are and how we, how we relate to God. Now, remember, last week we looked at the fact that he says we're sinners, helpless, ungodly, hostile to God, enemies of God. But once you respond to that love of God, that love for us in spite of who we were, those, those words change for us. Now, if you've not responded by faith to Jesus Christ, it hasn't changed for you. You're still a sinner, still ungodly, still helpless. But when you respond by committing your life to Christ through faith, 
It changes. Who you are changes. Your relationship with God changes. And suddenly there's different words to describe you and this new situation you find yourself in. Words in these 11 verses like justified, peace with God, the grace in which we now stand, reconciled. Let's, let's look at those words for a minute. The word justified that's used uh, two times in this passage is a legal term. And, and it's the picture of us standing in the courtroom of heaven charged with being sinners, and the truth is we're guilty. Guilty as charged. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Romans 3, 23, all of sin. We're guilty. But suddenly the court declares us not guilty. We're acquitted of the charge against us. That in the eyes of God we're no longer guilty. It's another word picture for what it means to be forgiven. We're not guilty. We're acquitted of, the, of, of, the, of, of sin. We're, we're acquitted of the guilt. And not only that, He gives us something. He not only acquits us of our guilt, but He gives us the righteousness of Christ. So that when you and I respond by faith to Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, that God says you're not guilty, and He gives to us the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus Christ, and we're declared not guilty. We're declared righteous. Even though in reality, we're sinners. But yet God changes our reality, if you will. And here's the thing. If you've responded to God's love by giving your life to Christ, you've become a believer, you've been saved, your justification is something that has already happened. You've already been declared not guilty. You've already been given the righteousness of Christ. And today you are living in the permanent reality of that new circumstance. Tomorrow you'll be living in that reality. And for all of eternity you'll be living in the permanent reality that there was a moment in the past when by faith you said yes to Christ and in that moment He declared you not guilty. See, the judgment day for you and me as believers is not God determining whether or not we're saved or lost. That is a settled reality about whether or not I've already given my life to Jesus Christ. And the judgment day is nothing more for a believer than God announcing for all of the universe what is a present reality. It's a present permanent reality because I have been justified at the very moment I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Look in your Bible at Romans chapter 8 verse 1 for a moment and this will be very clear. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now, right now, this moment, this instance, no condemnation, no judgment it could be translated. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, as John's Gospel says, if you're in Christ, you've already passed from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It's already happened and it's a settled issue and you live in that reality today, tomorrow, and every tomorrow of your life as a believer. Now look in chapter 5 again at verse 1. He said, having been justified by faith, that's our part, the by faith. God did His part in choosing to love us and sending His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And now He extends to us justification, forgiveness, and a new relationship with Him. And our part is to respond by faith and say, Yes, God, I believe that. Yes, God, I need that. Yes, God, I want that. Yes, God, I accept that. And right now, God, I commit my life to You. Your response. 
And until you make the decision to trust Christ, you've not responded positively. And you're still in the courtroom of heaven, guilty as charged. You're not declared not guilty. You're not acquitted until by faith you respond to Jesus Christ. You're still guilty until that moment comes in your life. And notice verse 1 begins with that very significant theological word, therefore. Because of chapter 4, therefore chapter 5. And in chapter 4 he talks about justification and he makes it very clear that we are not justified by works, by our good deeds. In chapter 4 he says we are not justified by circumcision, a Jewish religious ritual. And we're not justified by our religious rituals. I'm not justified in heaven because of baptism, Lord's Supper, or any religious activity. In chapter 4, he makes it clear we're not justified by obeying the law, by doing good deeds and, and being a moral person. He says, because you're not justified by those things, therefore, we have been justified by what? Faith. The only way I can respond to this grace of God and be justified in the courtroom of heaven is by a faith response that commits my life to Jesus Christ and depends upon Him for my salvation, depends on Him for my forgiveness, and then lives for Him out of gratitude. It's a faith response. Faith or belief, some form of the word believe, is mentioned 15 times in chapter 4 alone. So by faith is how we respond. And what we're responding to is Christ and His crucifixion because in verse 9, He says we're justified by the blood of the Christ. The fact that on the cross, Jesus in shedding His blood and dying paid the penalty for our sin. And I, in faith, respond to this love of God in Jesus that died for my sin. And when I do that, I'm justified. I'm acquainted to the charge of sin that is against me. But here's what I want you to really get. When I respond by faith, to this expression of God's grace, God's love in Jesus Christ, so much more happens than I simply being justified. See, my relationship with God my salvation is a whole lot more than God simply saying you're acquitted, not guilty. It's so much more than that. Not only am I acquitted, not only am I justified, but in this passage he says we are reconciled to God. You ever been at odds with somebody? And you apologized or they apologized and you were reconciled? And suddenly people who were at odds are together? Remember before Christ, the Bible says in this passage, we are enemies, we are, we're hostile toward God, we are in opposition to the things of God. But when by faith I respond to Christ, suddenly I'm reconciled. God and I are reconciled. Our relationship has changed. It's not that God only in, in, in the courtroom legally says I'm not guilty. We are reconciled to one another and enter into a relationship. And our relationship moves from one of hostility to one of peace. That's the reason in verse 1. Look at it again, verse 1. He says not only have we been justified by faith, but because of that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's courtroom legally declares me not guilty. And God says, hey, we're reconciled and enter into a relationship. And there is now peace between us. Peace with God. The, 
the, the prefix, the, the little preposition, the preposition with in the Greek is pros. It means toward or facing. It's the idea that right now, because of my faith in Christ, I can face God. I can see God and so can you. When, when, when you respond in faith to God, you can have peace with God, peace facing God. That the judgment day is going to be many, many things. Being at the throne in heaven is going to be many, many things. But we will be there at peace with God, able to face Him. Because there's not enmity between us. We are reconciled. There is peace. And the word translated peace, the root word means to bind together. So we are bound to God in love. In fact, this Greek word peace... It's used in the, the, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was used in Jesus' time. This Greek word for peace is used to translate the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is a, a, a full word, a, a, a big word. And it means more than just peace as you and I think of peace. Peace means the cessation of hostilities. Shalom means that, but it also means the positive of, of, of going the extra step of wishing blessing upon you, of wanting your well-being, of working for your welfare, for your good. And what the Bible is saying is, is this. When we enter into this faith relationship with Jesus Christ in, court, in the courtroom of heaven, we're declared acquitted, not guilty. We're reconciled to God. We enter into a relationship with God. But it's a, re, it's a relationship of peace. Not only have the hostility ceased, but God is working on our behalf. God is seeking to bless us. This relationship with God brings benefits to us. God is helping us. No longer are we helpless and weak. We now have the God of eternity on our side working for our sake. Blessing us, benefiting us. His love blesses us. That's part of peace. It's an incredible thing. Peace. Bound together. Bound in love. You see, the reason God wants to shalom us is because He loves us. Notice in verse 2 He says, Our introduction into this grace in which we now stand. This grace, this love that you and I now live in, that at this very moment we, we exist in, we live in, we stand in the place of His love, rather than in a place of, of having to earn God's approval. Rather than living in a place where, where we're, we're just hoping we're good enough. When we respond by faith to Jesus Christ, we immediately, it's like we just step into the middle of God's love. We step into the middle of God's grace and every day of our life we live in, we exist in, we stand in that grace of God. And I don't have to earn His approval. I'm His child. He loves me. I live in, I exist in His love. And so being saved is a whole lot more than God simply saying you're not, you're not guilty anymore. We have a relationship. We're reconciled. He shaloms us. He, he, he brings peace to us. And He works for our benefit. And, and He says, just like you with your family, 
You're my family. And you stand in, you live in, you exist in my grace, in my love. That's, that's what I mean when I say that when we come to Christ, our relationship with God changes. And, and, and that means more than just being saved as we normally think of it. It means that our total situation is different because of it. Who we are is different because of it. Our standing with God is different because of it. And, and, and this change in our situation brings about a change in how we see ourselves. How we see life. It, it brings a change in our attitude toward life. There's, there's a word used three different times in this passage. The New American Standard that I'm reading from uses the word exult. Exult. Your Bible may use the word rejoice or, or glory or joy or boast, verses 2, 3, and 11. This word is used 31 times in the New Testament. And the passages other than these three times in Romans 5, it always means to boast about something, to be proud about something, to have confidence in something, to brag about something. It's the word that Paul used when he said, I boast in the Christ and, and the cross of Christ alone. That, that whatever that object is, I boast and I am confident in that. I get glory from that. That's it. That's my hope. And I, I'm confident because of that thing. And I rejoice in it. And I'm boasting, I brag about it. It's where my confidence comes from. It's what I'm confident in. And he, he says here, we exult, boast, or confident in three time, in three things. Look at verse 10. This new situation we find ourselves in. He says we exult, verse 11 rather, we exult in this reconciliation. In God because of this reconciliation. In other words... I rejoice in, boast in, brag in, and confident because I am no longer a sinner, ungodly, an enemy of God, helpless and hopeless and weak. I am now, because of my faith in Christ, a member of the family of God, justified, reconciled, at peace with God, in the grace of God. And because of that, I boast. I'm, I'm confident. In other words, I know who I am, he says. I know who, I, I'm a believer. I'm, say, I, I'm in this new circumstance. I'm somebody different now. And I know that. And I'm glad about that. And I boast in that. And I'm glory in that. And so when I'm at work and somebody's making fun of me, hey, that's all right because I know who I am. I know who I am. When you've got a relative that doesn't get it and, and, and they're trying to pull you down and pull you from Christ, it doesn't matter because you know who you are. You're in Christ. You've been reconciled. You're in the grace of God. And you boast in it and you're confident in it. And you don't allow anybody out there to get you away from that. You know who you are. When they call you names or they put temptation in front of you, you know who you are. And you boast in it. You boast in your reconciliation. You're proud. You're proud to be a follower of Christ. You're proud to be reconciled. You're proud to be in the grace of God. And you wouldn't want it any other way. But there's a second thing we boast in. We exult in. Verses 3 and 4 are tribulations. Now that one goes so contrary to human nature. 
and on the surface doesn't make sense. Jesus said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. All of us will have tribulations. And that word tribulation means pressure. To have something pressing down on you. A heavy load. It's, it's, it's a burden. It's a hard time. It's a circumstance that's difficult. And everybody's going to have those. But what the Bible is saying is that as followers of Christ, when we're going through those, we have something that those who are not following Christ don't have. We have Him. And we have a destiny. And, and we have the reality that God is always working to produce something in our life. And that because I'm a follower of Christ and I'm in this new situation, that the most important thing to me is my relationship with Christ. And I want Him always working to make me more Christ-like. Always working to make me more godly. Always making me to reflect His will more and more. And so He says here, that these tribulations, if we don't, if, if we don't give a, what do they produce? Perseverance. And perseverance means to remain under, to not run away. When, when, when you don't give up, when you, when you are so confident in your relationship with Christ and you trust, and that relationship matters to you more than anything else, no matter what trial you're under, what's pressing down on you, you don't get out from under it. You don't run away. You don't give up. You remain. You persevere. And that perseverance is going to give you, what does he say? It's going to work, accomplish, produce, give a result of proving character. It's just like in verse 8, when God has proven his love, it's, a, it's, a, it's an established fact because Jesus went to the cross. When you and I don't give up, when we don't quit, when we are faithful, when we hang in there, when we serve him and love him and know who we are and we're proud of that and we don't run from it, our character, our faith, our commitment is demonstrated. It's established. It's proven. And you can't prove it without doing it. And if you're always giving up and you're always running away, your character is never going to be established. Never going to be proven. And your hope is going to be up and down like a yo-yo because you can't have a steadfast hope that never gives up until... A hope that, that, that enlivens your being until you stay with Christ for more than just a day or two. So we exult in this new situation. We exult as we go through hard times because God's working in our life to bring something good. But we exult, rejoice, boast because we know that on the other side of it, there's glory. And so he says again in verses 1 and 2, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And I talked about this a little bit yesterday at Jay Jackson's funeral. That, he, that he's talking about the glory of heaven. The glory that, that, that belongs to Christ. The glory that all of the universe and all of eternity are, are going to see at, at the, the second coming and the judgment. That, that when every knee bows and every tongue confess and all the glory of the universe and all the glory of, of eternity is on Christ. It's going to flow over onto us. And we're going to share in it. Because we will be standing there in His grace, in His love, as a member of His family. We will be standing there not as people afraid of Him, 
but as people who love Him and are loved by Him. And the glory of Christ will bless us, will shalom us, will bring us greater peace than we've ever known. You see, without Jesus, you're a sinner. Without Jesus, you're ungodly. Without Jesus, you are helpless. You can't fix your eternity on your own. Without Jesus, you're on the outside looking in. But when you respond to His love demonstrated on the cross, you're justified, forgiven, declared not guilty. You're reconciled to God, no longer at odds with Him. You stand in, you live in His grace, His love. There's peace between you and Him. And He's working for your benefit. And you rejoice no matter what because of that new relationship. You rejoice in that new relationship even when times are hard. And you rejoice because you know the glory that's coming in the future. Not because of who you are or what you do, but because of Jesus and who He makes you to be. You know that. One of my favorite stories I first heard many years ago. About a very devout believer who was dying. One afternoon his pastor stopped by the house to talk. And during their conversation this man started to cry. They were talking about heaven, about death, and he started to cry. And that preacher just kind of instinctively reached into his pocket, pulled out a handkerchief and leaned over and wiped away his tears. And the man started to smile. And he said, just think, preacher, the next time somebody wipes away my tears, it'll be the hand of Jesus. That's our glory. That's our hope. Let's stand for prayer. Father, in this room right now are men and women, boys and girls, teenagers who struggle so much with who they are. And I pray that this morning the issue of who they are would be settled. It would be settled. Because they would respond in absolute surrender and commitment to Jesus Christ. And that you would so fill them with your love and grace 
that today and tomorrow and every tomorrow they would be so proud to be your child that they would never be ashamed of that and they would live in the glory of who you are in their relationship with you. Father, I pray that those who need to kneel at this altar would come and do so and pray and talk to you right now. Those who need to give their life to Jesus would do it right now. God, help us all to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. When we sing, I'm asking the young people, the adults, wherever you are in this room, to make your way to this altar, to talk to one of our pastors here and say, today I want to give my life to Christ. I want to respond in faith to this love of Jesus. Others of you need to kneel and pray and draw closer to Him. And some need to join this church or request baptism. But we wait for you. Let's sing together and you come right now.